Amen. Well, if you'd remain standing for the reading of our scripture passage this evening. Our text is Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, but for some context, I'll begin at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Lord, we desire that your word would pierce our hearts, would perform heart surgery Lord, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing uh, joint and marrow. Lord, we ask that your word would do that even now. Would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've said this before, the first time I was up here, but I'm thankful for a church that allows young seminarians the opportunity to teach and to preach, to be able to put into practice the things we're learning in seminary and and apply them in practical ministry. And consequently, I'm thankful for a congregation that puts up with that. So I'm thankful for you all. But our passage this evening is from Ephesians chapter 1, and I've chosen Ephesians very purposefully. Ephesians was the first book of the Bible that I read and studied when I first started walking with the Lord in college. Uh, Consequently, this book was extremely formative and developmental in my early understanding of what it meant to walk with the Lord and and walk with Him not only as Savior, one who saves me from my sins, but walk with Him as Lord who rules over my life. This idea of complete surrender. Beautiful themes from the book of Ephesians that, that Paul writes out. And Ephesians has since become and been one of my favorite books of the Bible. Not, not only that, possibly my favorite of all time. And I don't think it's merely a masterpiece of the gospel explained, but it also reflects Paul's pastoral heart for the little church in Ephesus that he planted. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he, he breaks it down into two distinct separate parts. Chapters 1 through 3 are all what we call indicatives, statements of fact, truth statements, who we are, who God is, what God has done for us. And then chapters four through six are all imperatives. Based on one through three, go and live this way, Paul says. Live in light of the reality of who you are, which I've exposited for you in the first three chapters of my epistle. And in this way, Paul's entire letter, the structure of his whole letter to the Ephesians, is itself a, a small picture of the grace of the gospel. We, we cannot live a certain way in order to earn our status before the Lord. There's, there's nothing that we can do. Indeed, there's no way that we can live rightly. As David writes in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me, even in the womb were we sinful. 
born with inherent sin because we're descendants of the fallen man, Adam. No, the gospel is only that we being dead in our trespasses, living as children of wrath, deserving God's wrath, were destined to be at enmity with God if we were left to our own devices. But because God is rich in mercy, because of the immeasurable love that he has for us, we were saved by God's grace for good works, not saved because of any supposed good works that we have. And my friends, as, as good Reformed Presbyterians, we, we might know that. We might, we might know that the gospel is, yeah, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I know it's nothing that I do, that I earn my salvation. We're thankful that we have two pastors that the Lord's blessed us with who consistently preach Christ crucified to us and do it week in and week out. And yet, does the reality of the gospel, glorious as it is, negate the challenges of our daily lives? Does the beautiful glory and sweetness of the gospel simply wipe away all the struggles and hurt and suffering that we face here in this broken, fallen world? The Christian life is a struggle, my friends. The Christian life is a grind. Who among us has never felt weighed down by life's burdens, by the daily grind of the life that we live. We need not only remember what the gospel is, but what the gospel promises. And so I want to look at these opening verses of this first chapter of Ephesians, and I'd love for us to see that because in life, even the Christian life, we experience discouragement, anxiety, fear about the things we see going on around us, and simply our daily battle against sin, We must remember who we are in Christ Jesus. And I'd love for us to do that in three points. First, present praises, and then past plans, and finally, future promises. Present praises, past plans, and future promises. And guys, I I tried very hard to alliterate all those things. So for you OCD folks that just squirmed in your seat when you heard that one F amongst all those P's, I apologize. So first, present praises. Let's look at the beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul opens up the entire letter with praises to God the Father. And interestingly enough, this, our English Bibles breaks up this, these, these first uh, 14 or so verses into different sentences so that we might more easily understand what Paul is trying to say. But in the original language, when Paul was writing and sending this letter, verses 3 through 14 was one long run-on sentence in Greek. And that's not, that's not to say that Paul was... Uh, a stranger to Greek grammar. No, he's a very well-educated man, far more educated than many of us are. And, and he, he wasn't simply disregarding Greek grammar rules or, or forgot them. Rather, he, he could not but help but overflow with abundant praises to God the Father in opening up his letter to this little Ephesian church that he planted 
years earlier. He, he overflows with praises to the Father, so much so that he bulldozes straight through grammar rules to make it clear how much we've been blessed in Christ. And remember again who Paul's talking to. He's, he's talking to the same people who witnessed the Holy Spirit work in Ephesus so incredibly, so beautifully, that when Paul, when Paul first came to Ephesus to proclaim the gospel, the pagan magicians who had been practicing magic arts for years upon hearing the gospel responded by burning all their books of magic in front of the whole town, the whole city of Ephesus. These Ephesian Christians, they, they knew the power of the gospel. They recognized what the gospel could do. And so Paul, in his writing to them, writes to encourage them. These, these Ephesians were the same ones whom Paul called to himself. Later in Acts chapter 20, Danny referred to it this morning. We've been going through this in our, our morning sermon series. Acts chapter 20, Paul calls these Ephesian elders to himself after he's left them. And he reminds them that he didn't shrink from preaching the whole counsel of God to them while he was with them. They would have heard Paul preach and teach the truths of the gospel time and time again. And yet, Paul still opens up his letter to them with praises, abundant praises to God the Father. He reminds them of all the spiritual blessings that, that we experience as a result of being united to Christ. The basis of it all being the blessedness of the Father. And because he's the, ble- the basis of it all, he has blessed us in Christ. Twelve times in this section, my friends, Paul uses the words or something of the words in Christ, which is significant for us. It, it should tell us that it helped shape Paul's theology. It indicates to us that uh, what Paul is talking about in this section is both a product of God the Father's love for us and is also tied up in us being united with Christ. One commentator, Kevin DeYoung, writes that union with Christ is probably the most important doctrine that we never hear about. And I would argue that's because in our talking of of all the blessings we've received, in our talking about the Christian life, God's providence that he shows to us, the, the fact that we've been counted as righteous before the Lord, justification, the ongoing growth and holiness that we experience, sanctification, and the coming glory that awaits us as believers, glorification. All those things are products and benefits of the union that we experience with Christ Jesus. No longer are we enemies of God, no longer fighting against God's will for our lives, but because the Holy Spirit has worked so mightily in our hearts, we, we have now been united to Christ and experience all the blessings and benefits thereof. And in fact, we've been united, if we have been united to Christ by the Spirit's transforming work in our hearts, then we get to claim all the blessings of the Father. And we get to call him our Father. We, we don't need to shy away from calling God our Father because of some supposed orthodoxy. Oh, I just don't feel right calling God my father. It doesn't, it doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel proper. It doesn't feel like I'm giving the Lord the, the 
worth that he is due. My friends, Jesus himself tells us that when we pray, we are to pray, Our Father in heaven. Oh, the depths and the riches and the joys of getting to call the creator of the universe our Father. We who were enemies of God from birth, desiring our own sinful desires, have been made new by the Holy Spirit of Christ and have been adopted as firstborn sons with Christ. Now now worthy of receiving the inheritance that firstborn sons were due in Paul's day. Firstborn sons were worthy of receiving everything that their parents were to give them. This inheritance. Because we've been united with Christ and can claim God as our Father, we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's not one blessing, one spiritual blessing from God that we don't get to claim as our own. The blessings that we receive have been secured by Christ for us that we might experience them right now in time and in space. And the way that Paul begins his letter here is significant for us when we develop our own theology and and doctrine and sharpen our own doctrine. The blessedness of the Christian life is a product of the blessedness of God the Father working through Jesus Christ, working in and through Christ. We receive every spiritual blessing as a result of being united to Christ because of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, all founded in the love and goodness and grace of God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. My friends, who among us doesn't need to be reminded of this? How many of us need to hear this? That in the muck of life, the exhaustion of life that we face, as a result of living in a broken, fallen world, that because we've been joined together with Christ, we get to call God our Father. Regardless of what our own preconceived notions of fatherhood may be, whether you had a phenomenal father or a terrible father or no father at all, God the Father shows himself to us as a loving, gracious, merciful God. One commentator says it's, this reality is like a loving father cheering on his child at a sports game, saying, go, fight, win, keep fighting. I love you, I'm with you, I'm behind you. Persevere. And yet, the difference is that our Heavenly Father says, keep fighting because I've already won the battle. I've already secured victory. Now persevere. Do we realize that the present praises of God the Father have such direct implications for our lives, my friends? Well, that's present praises. Secondly, from this text, we see God's past plans Look with me at the beginning of verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul is reminding the Ephesians that God the Father has blessed us in Christ while also having chosen us before the beginning of the world. 
we experience the, the blessings and benefits of being united to Christ right now, but that's because of a divine plan that happened in eternity past where we were once united to Christ before the beginning of the world. God chose us not because we've done anything to be worthy of being chosen. No, we were spiritually dead. God didn't look down the corridor of time to see if, if we would accept him. No, he who created us for himself knew precisely why and how he would save and redeem his people for himself. And he planned beforehand that his Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to produce a saving faith that, that we otherwise, in our sinful, spiritually dead states, could not have produced ourselves. We also can't choose ourselves, certainly not before we're physically born, and certainly not before the, the existence of the entire universe. No, God chose us of his own volition. And, and why would God choose us? Well, Paul goes on to say, for the praise of his glorious grace. Not that he needs praise, but rather that he wants his people to know how good he is. And so he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, how does that work? I have absolutely no idea. How does God choose us? Why does God choose us? I don't know. God didn't have to choose any of us because all of us were destined for hell. The fact that he chose any of us is evidence of his grace to us. But I do know that he chose us because he loves us and to show us something of his goodness and his grace and his glory. Friends, the very same God who made a covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, is the same God who in eternity past made a plan of redemption, covenanted with himself that he would save a people for himself. According to his will and his purpose, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew exactly how they would show forth their triune glory in the redemption of a broken and fallen people. God's covenants in the Old Testament, uh, my friends, they, they, they further explain God's plan of redemption. They're not, they're not these new creations of, of God saying, okay, let me amend what I said before let me change this based on events that occurred that I didn't foresee. No. God's covenants with the Old Testament fathers were, were mere further explanations of his initial plan of redemption to redeem a people for himself. What a beautiful truth. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, not by anything that we've done, not by any merit that we think we've earned, our best deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord, done of our own selfish desire to try and earn any favor with God. No, God chose us purely because he loves us. How could a holy God love a wicked, sinful people? Because he's a loving, good, gracious God. Now, he didn't simply excuse the sins that we've committed. We know that the penalty for those sins had to be paid. If God is just, if God is to be called a just God, he can't merely pardon sins. 
No, friends, we know that our sins were paid for on the cross by Christ himself. Praise God that, that it's not because of our obedience to, to the Lord, but because of his goodness to us and what he has accomplished by Christ's life and death on the cross that we now have union with Christ who is seated firmly in heaven. Christ's physical body sitting in heaven. Paul says we are seated with him as a result of the past plans. Praise God, the Father, for his divine plan to redeem his people. In my own ministry context, working with youth, I've, I've found that a, a common struggle amongst youth is uh, this feeling of, of being insecure, feelings of discouragement, anxiety, feeling, feeling like they can't be loved, feeling like they're too sinful to be loved. And yet, we know that those feelings of insecurity aren't limited to our teenage years. Who among us doesn't need this reminder? Who, who of us has never felt weary or downtrodden or insecure or doesn't need to be reminded not only that we're image bearers of the Almighty God, but that he chose us and has made us to enjoy communion with him? Oh, how quickly we can forget who we are in Christ Jesus. My friends, the very one who accomplished and offers every spiritual blessing to us is the same one who invites us to himself, saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Remember, we are loved by a covenant-keeping God who calls us from this passage to remember who we are, chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus, how this should cause us to praise God for who he is. My friends, if we know that the Lord has called a people to himself even before the beginning of time, and yet we're not privy to who those people are, this should empower our evangelism. We should say, Lord, I have no clue who you've called to yourself, who you have chosen. So, Lord, give me vigor to proclaim the gospel to everyone. If the Lord is, in fact, going to redeem a people for himself, he uses means. Our God is a God of means, and he uses people, his people, to further advance his kingdom. If God has chosen us, Oh, how that should motivate us to then go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Well, third and finally, we see in this passage God's future promises for the believer. Look with me again at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. My friends, He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Do you see how, for Paul, theology and living are not not these separated things. 
that are at odds against each other, but they are naturally and organically related. For Paul, right theology leads to right living. Doctrine produces doxology or worship. And we worship God by obeying his commands in our continued growth and holiness. That's what we were made for. What's the purpose of our being chosen by God? God the Father, in conjunction with being united to Christ? Well, among many other benefits, it's certainly for the praise of God's glory. But it's also that we should become holy and blameless. And this is the hope for every believer. We know that here on this earth, amidst the struggles that we face in our daily battles against sin, that there is hope for us, that we will be made holy and blameless. That the Lord, in his sovereign plan, will conform us more and more into the image of his Son. But friends, that temporary hope points to the greater hope that one day Christ will return and will make us all sinless, perfect, blameless, living in perfect communion with him. That's the hope for every believer, my friends. May we be heavenly minded in that regard. Not only will we become more and more like Christ progressively over time, but we know that this gives way to the ultimate holiness we'll experience when our faith becomes sight. We will become holy on this earth, but we will also become sinless and blameless when Christ comes to redeem all things, make all things new, redeems this broken, fallen world. The God who established a covenant with his people, who fulfilled that covenant in the person and work of Christ Jesus, whose life inaugurated the kingdom of heaven here on earth is the same God who will again restore his people to himself fully in the consummation of Christ's return. My friends, we, we were made for heaven. It's the message of redemption. We were made for something greater than this fallen world that we live in. Do we live like that? Do we live as though we were those who, who were not calling this earth our home, but were saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Redeem this broken world. Gather up your people to yourself like a mother hen gathers her chicks and make all things new. Friends, if, if, we, if we have a heavenly citizenship and we know this earth is not our home, we can face the challenges of our daily lives with confidence because we know we've been built up and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit of Christ who is at present redeeming his people. We heard this morning in Sunday school, if you were with us, that Jackson Taylor and his wife Hannah are working in Kenya. And when they first got there, they proclaimed the gospel. And they were not ready for how quickly people would turn from their sin and turn to God. Hearing that story this morning, my friends, was a burst of gospel energy that I needed 
because so often I can forget who I am, whose I am, and what the real trajectory of my life is. I think we can all forget that. We know that the king of glory has in fact crushed the serpent's head and the serpent will soon be cast into the lake of fire and no longer reign in this world. And when Christ Jesus comes again to inaugurate fully the kingdom of heaven, what a glorious day that will be. Do we look forward to that day? Do we often feel aimless and without hope? How, how often do our desires not line up with, with the things that we've been called to do? Lord, I know this is what you've called me to do, but I just don't feel like doing that. How often do we fall back into the patterns of this world? Old habits of sin that we've seemingly relapsed back into? How often, the more we think about our heavenly citizenship, do we see the brokenness of this world and how it pervades even our own lives as redeemed Christians? We have the promises of God that not only will we, will we become holy here on this earth, but we will ultimately be glorified with Christ. And I don't think we think about that often enough. I think if we did, our perspective on the daily grind of life would look different. Friends, we can trust the Lord when he says that he will make all things new. And we can trust the Lord that he's given us the means of grace by which we can remember those promises and grow in holiness. God's word, we, we heard this morning in Acts the importance of hearing God's word preached and sitting in God's word from Pastor Danny. God has given us prayer by which we can enjoy communion with him directly. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The Lord's given us the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism which are themselves visible signs of God's grace to us. When we see little baby Reagan baptized like we did this morning, it's a special picture of God's grace that's all too infrequent that we should savor when we get to see it. The Lord has given us these means by which we can grow and, and trust him more and more and so what do we do with this? What can, we, what can we say from what Paul reminds us of? What Paul tells the Ephesians here? Friends, persevere. Persevere. This life is difficult. And the enemy wants to rid us of any joy that we have. But take heart. For lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. When the saints triumphant rise in bright array and we will see the king of glory pass along his way, praising him, living perfectly with him and enjoying all eternity with him. If you're hearing these promises of God, you're hearing them now, but you know nothing of personally experiencing the blessings of being called God's child then I ask, run to the one 
who offers himself to you. Run to the one who says, come to me, all who are weary. I will give you rest. Run to the one who came to redeem you out of the bondage that you are in to your sin and out of the muck and mess of this world. Ask the Lord to work mightily in your heart that you might know the joys of what it means to be a follower of Christ who's done everything on our behalf and invites us into fellowship with him. But if you know the blessing of being a believer, you know the personal blessings of being called a child of God, then bask in the blessings you've received from God the Father through Christ Jesus. Bask in the blessings that you've been freely given out of God the Father's love for us. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And take heart. For all the trials we face here on earth, give way to the glory that we will soon experience. I'll close with a, an anecdote that I remember from years ago of a metal worker who, back in days of old, uh, metal workers would take raw pieces of gold, um, raw gold ore, and in order to refine them, they would heat them up under extreme heat, and the result would be that all the impurities would rise to the top of the molten metal and would burn off, gone. And in the metal worker would not stop this process until he could look down at the molten metal in front of him and see his reflection reflected perfectly back up to him. And in the same way, my friends, God the Father loves us so much that he will not relent to put any and every trial we experience in our lives so that he might draw us to himself, that we might lean on him all the more. May we remember the purposes of the trials of this life, how they give way to glory, that one day, that glorious day will come and we'll be united with Christ and enjoy the full consummation of the benefits of being children of God. Oh, the joys of being a Christian. Oh, the joys of being called presently sons of God knowing that we've been chosen by God before eternity passed for the purpose of being holy and blameless here in this life and being perfect and sinless in the life to come. Lord, we know that you have written these truths for us that we might trust you more and more. Lord, we're going to leave here tonight and we're going to forget. But Lord, we ask, would you remind us more and more of who we are, whose we are, and the trajectory of our lives. Lord, we ask all these things in the precious name of Christ Jesus. Amen.